could I move the crowd? First of all, ain't no mistakes allowed. Here's the instructions, put it together. It's simple, ain't it? But quite clever. Some of you been trying to write rhymes for years, but we got dares, irritate my ears. Is this the best that you can make? Cause if not, and you got more, I'll wait. But don't make me wait too long, cause I'ma move on the dance floor. When they put something smooth on, so turn up the bass, it's better when it's loud. Cause I like to move the crowd. Hello and welcome to episode 1171 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by me and Ben. I'm me, Jeff Sullivan, writer at Fangraphs, joined as always by recently, again, baseball writer at TheRinger.com, Ben Lindbergh. How are you? Yeah. You've, uh, you've touched on an old beat lately, which two, is uh, the sport that we discussed. Two baseball articles this week. <laughs> two in one week. Can you believe it? I say to you who writes two a day, but yeah, still, it's like getting back on a bicycle, or as we'll discuss in a moment, getting back on a bullpen cart. But yeah, you uh, you used a different number pronunciation format there. So for, for anyone who worries that we might be getting stuck in a rut after 1171 episodes, <laughs> evidently not. We just try new things, experimenting constantly. So we're doing an email show later in the week than usual, but I was just reading in this ESPN article about MLB's proposal to the Players Association. Essentially, MLB seems to be saying that if you hurry up, then we won't have to implement a pitch clock. So they're extending an olive branch slash threat at the same time, (laughs) sort of saying if you keep games under two hours and 55 minutes, then we won't have to have a pitch clock. Players don't want a pitch clock, even though pitch clocks seem to be just fine and they probably wouldn't mind if they had it. But the most interesting part of this proposal is this little bullet point here. MLB is ready to accept the union's proposal to study the feasibility of bullpen carts and would introduce the use of carts where feasible in 2018 and 2019. How do you think the study of feasibility of bullpen carts <laughs> will proceed? I'm imagining lab coats, sterile settings, dry runs of like bullpen, just people out in the bullpen timing themselves with stopwatches. How fast can we bullpen cart? This is not like a new technology. <laughs> carts, generally, bullpen carts aren't even a new technology. What, what do you think will determine the feasibility? How would you design a bullpen cart feasibility study? Yeah, right. So this is this is going to be a, a racetrack test. And in one lane, you're going to have Nick Vincent running or jogging, I should say. And on the other track, there's going to be a, a vehicle that's going to be driven by a person. And, uh, and it'll leave Nick Vincent in the dust. Uh, but the idea here is probably not to have bullpen race carts, just bullpen carts. I have not been a baseball fan long enough to be able to recall the heyday of these things no. existing. They were clearly phased out for some reason that Stephen Goldman could probably tell us. Or maybe you could. You've read more about baseball history. But I guess I've never thought that pitchers were too slow to jog in. Now, I know that the TV generally cuts away when someone is coming in, but you're not going to have a cart that like speeds out of the dugout. There's just going to be a safety concern. So the cart's going to go at a slow speed. So you're saving, I haven't done any math, but like, you know, seconds. I think the word is seconds. Now, maybe, (laughs) maybe the pitchers are like, a little bit extra tired because they jog in, so then they take a little longer to warm up. I'm not saying oh, no. that it's the not strikeout gonna... <laughs> rate's going to explode because pitchers just just leisurely riding in on the bullpen cart. They're going to have extra speed to dig deep. But then on the other hand, maybe maybe they won't warm up enough because instead of a nice warm up <laughs> jog, they're just going to sit on their butts. They're going to go from pitching to sitting to then Mm -hmm. pitching again. So I don't know. It's going to be a weird thing to study. But like you said, there's really nothing to study at all except maybe (laughs) to see if which bullpens are and are not cart accessible. Right. I want extremely rigorous studies. I want double-blind experiments done. I want precision down to the tenth of a second. Whoever is in charge of the bullpen cart feasibility study, please get in touch. We want to have you on. I want to ask you about how you're designing this study and what might make or or not make bullpen carts feasible. I mean, you you have pitchers coming in to songs. You have players who who wear baggy pants or tighter pants who care about the way that they present themselves. They play with a certain flair. They use their eye black in certain cases. They have really cool hair sometimes if they have hair. There's <laughs> there's a whole vanity aspect to baseball, and it's part of being entertainers, being showmen that that you want to look 
good why are you doing the thing that you're really good at but mm -hmm. there is nothing that would make a player just instantly lose his cool factor than arriving on the field <laughs> in the back of a golf cart like right. that's I, there's no better it's just so lame it, it would be a very lame thing to see and what what do you do with an entrance song Trevor Hoffman, you can't have hell's bells play while trevor hoffman gets wheeled into the mound for god's sake it doesn't make any sense no, I like the, the throwback potential. It's, I mean, it's very 70s and kind of quaint, but I, did, I just love the idea of, of a bullpen cart feasibility study. It's not like driverless bullpen cart technology or something where we have to test to see if it can find the mound from the outfield wall. <laughs> it's it's a golf cart. <laughs> Those work pretty well. There's, there's a pretty long history of, of golf carts working. But yeah, you're right. From an entrance and intimidation perspective i mean maybe like a loogie can ride a bullpen card and, and who cares <laughs> but if you're someone who's you know the fire breathing flamethrower who's coming in with whatever the the music that's supposed to pump up the crowd riding on the back of a golf cart might sort of sap that effect and why stop there why have a bullpen cart the outfielders need to cover just as much distance why not have three outfielder <laughs> cards or just one that does like a carpool system right it just goes from left to right field or right to left depending on the dugout sure. orientation just Safe drops field. them off yeah, yeah, right. You keep the dart by the dugout. You can use it for whatever other needs. Maybe maybe the uh, the ball boy can use the cart to go retrieve foul balls if he wants to. And you just see it constantly motoring around like it's Mario Kart. I don't know. But it seems like if you're going to implement one, you might as well just go and implement as many as possible because it's you're going to look ridiculous. Kenley Jansen's not going to want to come in <laughs> no. in the back of a golf cart. <laughs> yeah, there will be certain closers who disdain the cart. Anyway, I want to know more about the feasibility studies. I hope the full <laughs> test results are, are released whenever the testing is complete. So if there will be a warning. <laughs> if you get to the mound within 20 seconds, we won't implement a cart in 2019. <laughs> right. So a couple of quick things, some some house cleaning to mention. One thing I'm very excited about, there is a project that is being spearheaded by a trio of longtime listeners, Brandon Lee, Ken Maeda, and Darius Austin. They're doing a, a crowdsourced Effectively Wild wiki, essentially, and this wiki has existed for some time, but it's been pretty dormant. But what's happening now is that there is a Google Sheet sign-up where, in theory, people will claim episodes. I know there are a lot of people who like to regularly go back and listen to old episodes just for old time's sake. There are some people who've joined the show recently and haven't really had an incentive to go back, but maybe have thought about it at times. Maybe this is the opportunity. So essentially, you will sign up for episodes if you're interested in participating in this project. And there are some instructions on the sheet that Ken and Brandon and, and Darius have left there. And the idea is basically just to have a sort of reference. We have a lot of episodes. There's a big back catalog here. It can be intimidating at times. And 1171. <laughs> exactly. So each episode will be tagged with the topics discussed in that episode. So if we want to say, when did we discuss Lenny Harris? Then there will be a big database of tags where we can see which episodes we discussed Lenny Harris. It was quite a few. And even more exciting, there is, in theory, going to be a database of questions. So if you claim a, a listener email episode, then you would transcribe the questions that are asked in that episode. And ultimately, we will have a big database of questions because that's uh, a big concern that comes up. We get a lot of repeat questions, and I always try to point people toward the episode where we first answer that question. But there are hundreds of listener email show episodes at this point, probably, so it's hard to pinpoint them. So in theory, there will be a searchable database here and you know it doesn't have to be a comprehensive summary recap of the episode but just the basic information there are instructions in the sheet so i will link to that in the show page for this episode at fangraphs in the facebook group as well and i hope that people will help those guys out with that i hope it will be fun i'm i'm really i'm gratified that people are doing this and i i hope it goes well i look forward to the results that is an extraordinary undertaking and i will look forward to seeing how detailed the notes are after one day and after seven months <laughs> yes. Yeah. The Facebook group is incredible these days. Uh, another listener named Arthur Rudolph, who's already created lists and playlists of every song ever played on Effectively Wild, just recently found a way to come up with data on the Facebook group, like every comment, every like, every reaction to a post that has ever been started. So there's now a, a Google Sheet with a, a leaderboard of all of the contributors to the Facebook group with their 
output essentially over the years that the group has existed as well as data about like the posting frequency on various days and times it's it's the most effectively wild thing ever to have sabermetric stats about a Facebook group about a podcast about sabermetric stats so I love it it's uh it's great but Facebook group facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and again I hope that people will help out with that project I'm really looking forward to seeing the results agreed something I noticed today for no good reason but we have talked before a few times we'll see when it gets indexed in the archive specifically when we yes. talked about the ottawa champions but we have mm-hmm. talked about the ottawa champions before and i don't think we mentioned this but i have become re-interested in wilmer font dodgers mm-hmm. farmhand previously texas rangers farmhand previous ottawa champion mm. font pitched for ottawa made 21 appearances in 2015 pitched for ottawa again in 2016 they were going to the playoffs but then he got signed by uh, a major league team so he went over there but what i did not realize is that when font made three not very good appearances with the dodgers late in the season he was the first ottawa champion to reach the major leagues so uh. i do not have anything else to say about font right now i was thinking maybe i'll write about him but right now there's really no good <laughs> reason to but right now there's no good reason to write about anything so we'll kind of see where that goes but wilmer font first ottawa champion to make the major leagues all right the true champion of the ottawa champions so i have a few emails that are either informative or follow-ups not necessarily questions so i suppose we'll start with them so there was some research also done in the facebook group by a listener named mark arduini and he wrote about the mlb proposal to put a runner on second base starting in, what, the 11th inning, 12th inning, any inning after the 11th, to try to shorten games. And for now, MLB is just talking about doing this, I think, in spring training and, like, exhibition games, the All-Star game. They did do it in the WBC and Rookie League games. And one concern I've seen some people cite, evidently everyone just bunts. I haven't checked that, but evidently people just bunt to get that guy over and score the run, which is not fun if that's the case. But the stated goal, obviously, is to have games end more quickly so that you don't get super long games. And we can talk about whether we actually like that or not. I like super long games. But the idea is that the game will end sooner. And I've seen some people ask, well, why does it end sooner? Does it actually end sooner? Because if both teams get to start the inning with the runner on second base, then don't you just get the the same probability of extending the game that you would anyway? It's the same conditions either way. So Mark did the math. I am not necessarily qualified to assess whether he did it correctly, but he seems to think he did. I (laughs) ran it by one person who knows better than I and said it looked reasonable. So good enough for me. (laughs) If uh, other people want to dispute this, I know probability can be tricky at times. Feel free to write in. But Mark took the probability of the number of runs being scored from a a given base out state based on data over a, a long period of time, 1957 to 2015. So it might be a little different if you looked at just the current run environment. But here's what he says. In extra innings, the game only continues if both teams score the same number of runs in the inning. So if probability zero is the probability of a team scoring zero runs, then probability zero squared, I'm going to try to avoid reading too much math, is the probability of both teams scoring no runs and the game continuing. You can sum the probabilities for each number of runs to get the total probability of the game moving on to the next inning. If you add up the numbers for the base's empty state, you find a 70% chance the game will continue to the next inning. For the man on second state, you only have a 42% chance that the game will continue to the next inning. So that means that 28 percentage points higher chance that the game will end if the runner is on second to start the inning. So based on that, at least, this would adhere to MLB's stated goal. And he took this a step further to look at game length, and he says... According to Baseball Reference, the average nine-inning game length was three hours, five minutes, or about 20.6 minutes per inning last year, I assume. This round number doesn't account for the extra length of the late innings or the fact that a walk-off will end an inning short, so the problem could get more complicated if you wanted to, but to figure out the length of the extra inning games, I just multiplied the inning length by the probability an inning would get played and added up totals for all the innings until the probability was basically zero. The sum for a bases empty game was about 48 minutes, but for a man on second game, the sum was only 29 minutes. So by my rough math, 
Starting each inning, 12 and up, with a man on second would save about 19 minutes per 12-plus inning game. So it does sound as if this would work in theory. I don't know if it's worth it personally. It's tough because like a 13-inning game isn't fun particularly. You'd probably rather have it just end in 9 if it's going to end in 13. But when you can go to 13, then you get the possibility of going to 18 or 19 and 20. And then at a certain point, it becomes fun and memorable and kind of an endurance exercise. And so... I would hate to lose that. Like, I wish we could somehow lose the 11-inning game but keep the 21-inning game, but we can't do that, obviously, and I'm not sure it's worth it to me. But if MLB does go ahead with this and it has in, in certain levels of the game, then according to Mark's math, it would work, at least to a certain extent. And according to real math, it also can work. I will read uh, from a story from CBC referring to this rule about putting a runner on second. Quote, baseball experimented with a rule last year at the rookie level Gulf Coast and Arizona leagues, putting a runner on second base starting in the 10th. Extra inning games in those two leagues averaged 27 minutes longer than nine inning games, down from 43 minutes for all other minor leagues. So uh-huh. uh, there's a, a implied 16-minute advantage, which aligns very nicely with the calculated 19-minute yeah. advantage. So mm-hmm. theory meets practice. Baseball has proposed starting a, a runner on second base at the start of the 11th inning of the All-Star game and each additional inning. And mm-hmm. they also would use this in the 10th inning of spring training games. Uh, according to a January 9th proposal obtained by the Associated Press, spring training games would be capped at 10 innings. So I don't quite know what the point is if if you're capping it at 10 and (laughs) you're also putting a runner on second in the 10th then yeah i think pretty clearly then this is just a proposal to try it out and try to Mm -hmm. win minds because this is not doing anything to actually save time in spring training or in the all-star game so this is pretty clearly another step even though it says explicitly in here that baseball is not looking to do this in any games that count (laughs) you can still kind (laughs) of feel yourself getting surrounded and so i i agree with you to an extent of i think it's a silly rule and just let the games go it hasn't really been a big problem i don't think anyone i've never heard anyone say that they're not a baseball fan because the games just have too many extra innings (laughs) i think that if you can't stand baseball for that you just can't stand baseball at all you would say baseball Mm -hmm. has too many innings period which is probably true for people who don't (laughs) like baseball now i will say just like everything else and because i know that i'm pliable and i'll consume whatever people force feed me i would still watch baseball and everything would still be fine and even though we wouldn't get as many 18 19 20 inning games which are already a rarity we would probably develop a a new kind of appreciation of like a 13 or 14 inning game where either teams fail to score or they keep trading runs back mm. and forth just like in a like a college football game where the the teams just keep scoring over and over in the overtime format mm-hmm. if that's still the overtime format i don't know anything about college football anymore but <laughs> i would think that 13 and 14 inning games would become more interesting i agree with you right now that like 11 inning games are just stupid they just mm-hmm. feel like a complete waste of time. They're just so disappointing, falling right in the middle. Yeah. What's the inflection point where it moves from you rooting for the game to end to you rooting for the game not to end? Assuming you're right not, now? you know, <laughs> in an extra inning, assuming that you're not like on deadline or you don't have work in three hours or something. <laughs> so I'm know? not live chatting the game. <laughs> yeah. Right. Game not seven a, of the 2016 chat. world series. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um, uh, I, for me, I think I start to actually pay attention to a game around the, the 14th. And I know yeah. that the 14th is, is pretty deep, but I just, I just don't care. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I, I'm not going to turn on a game that's going on because, Whoa, it's in the 13th Padres right. pirates is a real barn. Bur- no, <laughs> like I'll turn on the Padres and the pirates in the 34th inning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm fine with this. If it actually were just an exhibition measure, no one really cares about a spring training game going 20 innings, but yeah, it seems almost inevitable that the more that this is tested in various other places, the more likely it'll be that it will eventually make its way to Major League Baseball. And the runner will be put on second by way of a cart. And uh, and maybe, maybe <laughs> down feasible, the line. We'll see. We'll <laughs> and down it. the line, the runner on second will then get to run the bases in a cart. <laughs> All right. Next follow-up. This is from listener Kevin. This is in response to a question from Colby that we answered last time. This was the question about Carlos Santana and his consistency and Mm. whether we thought that consistency was predictive of future consistency and whether teams would pay 
a volatile player or a predictable player differently, assuming they were equally productive on the whole. So Kevin wrote in, just heard that email podcast. He says, I actually wrote my senior thesis on that topic a few years back. We have a lot of smart listeners is the theme of this episode. The results were not 100% conclusive, but they indicated A, that past volatility is predictive of future variants, and B, teams pay more for players with high variants, at least in short-term contracts. The hypothesized reason, which has some basis in economic theory, is that teams have flexibility. If a high-variance player dramatically overperforms, the team gets all the upside, but if he dramatically underperforms, the team can bench or release him and find a replacement. This might also explain why the pattern only exists for short-term contracts, because eating a longer-term contract is less feasible. Of course, a simpler theory is that teams are simply too optimistic in free agency, paying for good years while ignoring bad ones. Certainly, this is plausibly true of the highest bidder. Volatile players have higher upside and thus get higher offers. But that is uh, the answer, at least the best answer we're ever going to get. So (laughs) I will post Kevin's thesis if anyone is interested in digging into the math. I will also post Mark's spreadsheet about the extra inning probabilities if anyone wants to take a look at that. But yeah, we have uh, a lot of very intelligent and dedicated listeners who school us on a lot of things. One day these answers will be archived. (laughs) That's right. All right, next follow-up. This is in response to a question we answered last time about batted balls knuckling and whether there could be such a thing as a knuckleball hitter, essentially, and whether that hitter would be good. So I got a few responses to this question. The first one comes from listener Tim, who writes in, Your conversation on knuckling hits reminded me of a past article on quote-unquote future batting champ Howie Kendrick. The second paragraph has an anecdote from Tory Hunter about knuckling a ball. This is from a Chris Ballard Sports Illustrated feature in the spring of 2008. And so it begins, In this era of jacked-up power hitters and on-base specialists who work deep counts, Angels second baseman Howie Kendrick's foremost skill is almost quaint. He hits hard line drives where there are no fielders. In doing so, he rarely alters his swing, tries to crank moon balls, or jerks one down the line. Neither does he lunge, teeter, or lean. Just one short, efficient cut after another, hand slicing through the hitting zone. Outfielder Tory Hunter, who joined the Angels this offseason as a free agent, was taken aback. Anytime you hit the ball so hard that it knuckles, that means you squared it up, says Hunter. The first time I saw him take BP, he knuckled it like 10 times. I don't think I did 10 times all last season. So Howie Kendrick is a knuckleball hitter or the closest that we are going to get in Major League Baseball. And I think that actually sort of makes sense because I was getting also some replies from Andrew Perpetua, who writes for Rotographs and the Hardball Times and elsewhere. He also runs the site XStats with uh, StatCast data and predicted results and actual results. Very smart gentleman. And he thinks that essentially you could only knuckle a ball if the bat and the ball line up almost perfectly. So the the pitch plane and the bat plane need to be pretty much the same or at least pretty close. And so when those two planes are, are equal or close, the spin of the ball gets chaotic. And so if you're a tiny bit above the ball, you get topspin. A tiny bit below the ball, you get backspin. There's sidespin if you're inside the ball. But if you line it all up, theoretically, you should have no spin. So what he said is that he thinks this is only feasible there's that word again if you hit the ball roughly at like six to seven degrees launch angle so just like a low line drive essentially he says like maybe on a rare batted ball you could get the knuckling effect on a slightly higher hit ball but you're not going to get like home runs that are knuckled they're probably going to be short line drives you know low line drives they can be hit hard Certainly, but uh, that's basically a a limitation probably on how you can knuckle a ball. And then one more email on knuckling from Joe, who says, I have experience with knuckling batted balls. It is possible for them to knuck. Interestingly, (laughs) I've never seen a softly hit ball have knuckling action. So again, hitting it hard seems to be a theme here. I have experience with this from two vantage points, behind home plate and at shortstop. Behind home plate, I was a catcher in college. Occasionally, a batter will rip a line drive that has practically zero spin. It's fascinating to watch. The ball, when hit in this fashion, will not always knuckle, but sometimes a knuckling action is visible. To be honest, I don't know who else on the diamond would pick up on it except for the catcher and the position player at whom the ball is most directly hit. 
It's a line of sight thing, I guess. And then he also says, from shortstop, I play slow pitch softball. I've seen more balls hit with little to no spin and slow pitch than I have in all my years playing baseball. Balls move slower and are easier to see. Also, I was wrecked by a knuckling line drive at shortstop. The shot came right at me very fast. I'm used to fastballs, 90 plus miles per hour, and this ball was crushed with no spin. The ball was knuckling a lot. I stepped forward to the line drive and the ball knocked around my glove. It struck me in the upper portion of my left pec. The ball then launched 10 feet past straight up. I caught the then pop-up for the out. The left side of my chest was brown slash purple slash yellow for two weeks thereafter. So if you are a hitter, I guess like Howie Kendrick, who hits a lot of line drives, low line drives, not a lot of power, you could somewhat consistently hit with a knuckling action, but you'd hit the ball hard you'd have to hit it hard and on a live drive trajectory and again it would be difficult to do very consistently i do not have a single follow-up for this (laughs) all right well again our emails inform us (laughs) so thanks to everyone who supplements our knowledge question from jason this was a little while ago as of the typing of this email the marlins have moved 19 wins above replacement from their 2017 roster with trades of D. Gordon and Marcel Azuna, Christian Yelich, and Giancarlo Stanton. If they trade JT Realmuto, it will bring the total to 22.5 war. Has there ever been this large a migration or exodus of talent from one team before? Sometimes you just have to answer a listener email with a full article, which I did. (laughs) So my second baseball article of the week was about the Marlins' latest fire sale, putting it into historicals perspective. Got a lot of help from people at the Baseball Gauge, Fangraphs, Baseball Reference, etc. Could not easily do this myself. But essentially, this is, at least by one definition, the most extreme fire sale ever. And Daniel Hirsch, who runs the excellent Baseball Gauge site, he just looked at October 1st to opening day, going back to basically the beginning of baseball history, and he counted up the war that teams traded over that span. So a single off-season fire sale. And he was using baseball reference war, so the numbers are slightly different. The Marlins are at 20.3 baseball reference war from 2017 traded. And that is actually the most war ever traded in a single off-season. The only time that more war was traded was the 1899 Louisville Colonels, who only get on there because of a a technicality. Essentially, they just like transferred half their team to the Pittsburgh Pirates because their owner, Barney Dreyfus, bought the Pirates. So, and then the Colonels dissolved. So it, it wasn't really the same sort of situation. So you could define fire sale differently, maybe, but by this definition, at least, even though the Marlins have only traded the four players, those four players were so productive last year that this is now the most extreme one winter trade exodus ever. So it was uh, it was fun to look in the article and see on the table that the Marlins have shown up twice before. Uh, yes. There is there is a, a I guess some something of a misconception. People a lot of people think that the Marlins tore it all down after 2003 when we yeah. have been reminded on multiple occasions that they didn't actually do that in quite the way that is remembered. And it is yeah. interesting that we have penalized them retroactively for something they didn't do. But nevertheless, they have been on there twice before, and to be able to assume at least the the biggest sell off in 118 years more or less uh, with an asterisk it's pretty incredible I don't know to what extent I want this to move forward I mean like if you're JT Realmuto right now what do you you can't you know you can't get out because you know Christian Yelich got out but you know that you don't actually have that leverage but on the other hand Christian Yelich got out and he would have been more reasonable to build around right because he was under team control longer and he's Mm -hmm. just kind of better and Real Muto being a catcher means he might not age quite so well so you think well why not move me too and then if he goes then if you're I don't know Dan Straley you could think well what if I also were to go <laughs> sure. and then if you're Justin Bohr you might be like somebody please know who I am so he probably doesn't <laughs> mind an opportunity to play because you know and there's so many first basemen in the free agent market he's not going to go anywhere but if you're Adam Conley you might think like I bet some teams could use my arm so like yep. how far how far could, I think with the, with the free agent market being so stuck I can't tell if it works for or against the Marlins but you know, they've already made the the obvious trades and maybe some moves that weren't quite so obvious. I have gone all the way around now to hoping that this works for them. I uh-huh. think that 
they uh i think we talked about this briefly before recently but i would think that they should just go maximum full like it's almost like a cleansing you know like you want to bring in young players who have never been with the marlins who are enthusiastic just to have an opportunity and you want to you want to you want to keep someone like real mudo just because he's so good but you know the marlins are going to leave a bad taste in his mouth he is part of what they were which means he's seen the marlins when they had a lot of talent which means he's going to be super bummed out going ahead with like rafael ortega playing three outfield positions so Mm -hmm. i would think if i were the marlins i'd be motivated to just have a complete separation from the product that was on the field last year just be like look we know that we're new we know that we've just taken over this team we know that you don't trust us and hey players we know that you didn't want to be on this team anymore so you're all gone we've replaced you with other younger players but Mm -hmm. if they could just have a completely clean break like lewis brinson is probably excited right now to have an opportunity he could make the opening day roster so could braxton lee so could magni uris sierra so could jt riddle is going to be a starting freaking shortstop in the major leagues which is unbelievable like the marlins can make themselves I can't quite think of the word, not execrable mm-hmm. to players on the team. And I would think just in the interest of, I know that they're already first place in your table technically, but just in the interest of like really letting them hold on to it forever, just mm-hmm. move everyone. Just do it. <laughs> just do it now. Just do it. Yeah. Actually starting Monday, not not right now. Or over the <laughs> right. Yeah. There was a report in the Miami Herald this week that said essentially that Bohr has not requested a trade, that Real Mudo has, but they haven't prioritized trading him the way that they did with Yelich basically because they thought Yelich would make more of a stink about it if they didn't trade him. I don't know if that's the real reason. He's also just extremely valuable, but he had directed his agent to make a public statement and Real Mudo hasn't, so he seems maybe more resigned to his fate. But certainly plenty of potential here. I mean, we've got two more months for the Marlins to make moves and add to this total. But if you're interested in the details, I've got a a whole Google Sheet linked from that article, and it has just every offseason ever essentially with the amount of war traded so you can look up your favorite fire sale and see where (laughs) it ranks but yeah i mean a lot of the teams on the list are repeat offenders because you know you get teams with terrible financial situations and they're just constantly selling off players and marlins are no exception but you know the 97 fire sale did kind of help lead to a world series and not too long a time after that and post 2012 sell-off did not but still i mean on the spectrum of fire sales like there are some much more depressing ones on this list probably than the marlins even though theirs is at the top now just because like Some of their moves were more about talent than salary relief. I mean, kind of ran the gamut. Like, sure, Stanton was getting out from under the contract, but Yelich was affordable, and he brought back a a great package of prospects. So it's not quite as terrible as it looked very early in the offseason. There are some redeeming factors to this record fire sale. Now, what if they had an about face and the, the ownership is just like, we see an opportunity, they sign you Darvish, they sign Jake Arrieta, they sign J.D. Martinez, Greg Holland, whoever else is out there, and they're just like, psych, we actually <laughs> do care. And we're going to, I mean, the team would be a nightmare because the free agents would, those are bad investments. But <laughs> yeah. I will I will say that for the pitching staff, if they do get to look forward to an outfield of like Braxton Lee, Magnier Sierra, and Lewis Brinson, look, I know these are not these are not really familiar names. Brinson may be accepted, but that outfield could run down a whole lot of fly balls. Mm-hmm. I, I think that second half Marlins could actually be the uh, I don't want to oversell it I think that they could be I think that they could be interested I like Adam Conley's arm mm-hmm. I think the outfield could play some good defense Dan Straley is fine and this guy Brian Anderson is an interesting third baseman they they have a lot of problems they're not a good baseball <laughs> team but no. I they they are just a team that is tearing down and rebuilding and given the association with the brand of course they get some crap thrown their way but I don't care. They're out from under the Stanton contract for the most part. They needed to do that because it just wasn't a good fit for them in the first place. I've come full circle. Go Marlins, (laughs) I guess. Well, I had a semi-fun fact in the article, which was about their outfield. So Marlins led the majors in outfield war last year, according to Fangraphs and Baseball Reference and Baseball Prospectus. Really great outfield, which they have entirely traded this winter. (laughs) And according to the Fangraphs depth charts, they now project to have the worst outfield war in the major leagues in 2018. So I was curious to see if 
this had ever happened before, if a team had ever gone from best outfield to worst outfield in the span of a single season. And it was shaping up to be a, a great fun fact. So it happened once in like the 1870s. I mean, there were, you know, six teams at that time. It doesn't even count. So in baseball's modern era, it has only happened one time, which is good, you know, if I could say this has only happened one other time, except that the other time that it has happened was like two years ago. It was <laughs> the Diamondbacks going from 2015 to 2016. They so had... let's see, they lose AJ Pollock, yeah. uh, Peralta gets hurt, right. and they play too much. He has money to us. Yeah, I think so. So Yep, that'll do it. <laughs> so that kind of spoiled the fun fact. It's uh, almost unprecedented, except that the precedent is extremely <laughs> recent. But anyway, all right, let's do one more here. This is from John. So this is almost a, a stat blast of his own. So he says... Didi Gregorius and Andrelton Simmons are around the same age, were both called up in 2012, have mostly been thought of as glove for shortstops, and are now seeing steady improvements at the plate in recent years. Since 2014, Gregorius, whose WRC pluses have been 75, 89, 98, 107, and Simmons, whose respective numbers have been 71, 81, 90, 103, have both seen their WRC Plus numbers rise by at least nine points in three straight years, with only Gregorius's 2014 season of 80 games and 299 plate appearances being a shorter season of work. Which player would you give better odds to make another nine-point leap in WRC Plus in 2018? And how likely do you think it would be for either player related random findings? I found this while looking at the projections for Didi this year and wondering if he was going to continue his streak and realized that Simmons has his strange streak going. I looked up player seasons since 1961 with at least 200 plate appearances, and there have been 57 different player seasons in which the player has increased his WRC plus at least nine points in three straight years. In the same time frame, the longest streak of WRC plus being increased by at least one point was seven straight seasons by Garrett Anderson. Simmons and Gregorius could be just the fifth players to, or I guess fifth and sixth players, to raise their WRC plus by nine in four straight seasons, joining Craig Biggio, George Foster, Magli Ordonez, and Mike Stanley. So who has the better shot to extend his WRC plus raising streak? Simmons. Yeah. Is that just because he's coming from a slightly lower bar or you just think that he has more potential in him to improve? He's better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I yeah. think so. Gregorius is. I think Gregorius is kind of maxed out his skill set, and that's never mm-hmm. a, a safe thing to say about any player because players get better uh, yeah. really quick. But he's not he a. He's not like a, the biggest beneficiary, maybe from Park plus ball changes. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Gregorius's power is <laughs> pretty much maxed out. He's in the right era, the right ballpark. He's a he's a very aggressive hitter. He already hits the ball in the air. Now with Simmons, Simmons makes more contact. He is a uh, more patient, more disciplined hitter. And he has not really been that much of a fly ball hitter so far. But last year he did post his lowest ground ball rate since 2013. Mm. The Braves tournament is something of a ground ball hitter. And the uh, Angels decided, no, let's not do that anymore. And uh, I think that Simmons, when you see Simmons really get into a ball, uh, I think that he, uh, he just gets it more than mm-hmm. Gregorius. I know that that is a very subjective thing to say, even though I'm a man who's sitting 30 seconds away from a Satcast query. If I <laughs> yeah. want to do it, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going <laughs> off memory. I think mm-hmm. Simmons has more natural power, and power is the surest and easiest way for a player to improve his WRC+. Plus. So yeah, I think that Simmons has more power he could get into. He hit more fly balls in the second half last year than he hit in the first, and he just uh, he's such a good contact hitter that when you get the bat on the ball like that, as we've talked about a million times, you just don't need to hit the ball that hard anymore for the ball to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say somewhere else. That's stupid. For the ball to go a, a far distance, the ball always, go, <laughs> always goes somewhere else. I have a quick yes. interjection uh, for okay. you. Because I just uh, clicked on Roto World while you were talking, and I saw, mm. according to, this is going to be a quiz for you. According to FanRag's John Heyman, the blank, 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 and blank are among teams looking at free agent Melky Cabrera. What you know right now, John Heyman has linked four teams to free agent Melky Cabrera. Who are those four teams? If you were to guess, this is not a trick question. These are not <laughs> surprises. These are probably the first four teams that would come to my mind imagining a very extremely boring free agent pursuit. <laughs> Orioles. That's the first one. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. Rays? No, not no? the Rays. Okay. 
All right. No, because I think the Rays would look for like free agent upside, and there's just nothing there. <laughs> that's probably true. Royals? Yeah, that's number two. <laughs> okay. A's? Nope. No? All uh, right. Hint. Think about worst, best to worst outfield. Marlins? <laughs> that's number three, and we've got one to go. Huh. Let's see. Well, the Giants are probably not going to do that again. Um, <laughs> maybe Tigers? Actually, the Tigers would be a good guess. This is the least obvious one. It's, it's the Pirates, because okay. I don't know. They have room. The Tigers are a good guess, because I don't even know what their outfield is, yeah. <laughs> except I guess maybe Nick Castellanos is in it. But yeah, just seeing Orioles, Royals, Marlins linked to Melky Cabrera, this is... Yeah. I know that like every morning I wake up and I'm like, baseball, please do something for me. But like this, this doesn't move. This moves the needle backwards, if anything. It's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, Andrew Kashner is rumored to be pursued by actually, probably the same teams. <laughs> All right. Step left. And this is, I guess, most numbers are stats, right? And records of things are stats. But this says mm-hmm. no OPS with pluses or letters around it. This is just a, a payroll stat blast that yeah. I was putting together. I sort of wrote about it in a post on Fangraphs Thursday afternoon. This is a numbers I was very hastily putting together Thursday morning when I thought that you and I were podcasting and I was in a stressed <laughs> out hurry. And then I remembered, <laughs> nope, that's not what we're doing. But it got me working fast. So I was just looking at uh, using beloved reference Cots Baseball Contracts, which is hosted by Baseball Prospectus. It has, for every team, payroll information going back to 2000. And it goes all the way up to having projected opening day payrolls for 2018, including arbitration settlements and league minimum salaries to fill out rosters. So the first thing that I noticed is that right now, (laughs) compared to last year, projected opening day payrolls league-wide, the league average team is expected to have an opening day payroll lower by 11 million dollars now the very obvious uh, point to make there is well no free agent has signed a contract yet so that will change if you figure that league-wide spending is projected to be down something like 330 million dollars league-wide well there's what like a hundred and more free agents available some of them are going to get paid a lot it would not be too hard to see those free agents signing for three to four hundred million dollars in this first season so i don't know if there's anything to projected payroll being down lots of players still need to find homes but question for you who do you think who would you have to guess has the lowest payroll right now in baseball this is not for tax purposes this is just straight up what they're paying for 2018 Hmm. Is it the Marlins? It's not the Marlins. Somehow, their payroll is $87 million. Wow. Well, it was pretty high before, but... Yeah. Yeah. Wei-Yin Chen, I think, is getting paid $78 million this season, so yeah, they can't really move him. But the Marlins are actually... uh, Their payroll right now is only seventh lowest. Huh. Okay. Is it the A's? It is the A's. Okay, so the A's, maybe not surprising, their payroll is projected to be down by $23 million from last season. That's quite a bit. But I think a very surprising team is in second to last. Can you guess the very surprising team in second to last in projected opening day payroll? Huh, I'm trying to think. Is it the Brewers? No, the Brewers are actually just above the Marlins. They have the eighth lowest payroll. All right, I wonder what it was before their recent moves. Maybe it was down there. Hmm. Well, uh, White Sox? White Sox are third lowest. Okay. That wouldn't be surprising, I guess. So that's probably not a great guess. So maybe I should say, when I say surprising, surprising given what they could spend, not surprising given the team's situation. Oh, Phillies. It's the Phillies. The Uh. Philadelphia Phillies in, uh, let's see, for example, 2012, they had baseball's third highest payroll. As recently as 2014, they had baseball's third highest payroll. Right now, they're second from the bottom, sitting on a projected opening day payroll of $63.7 million. I did a little analysis that compared current projected payroll to the five-year average of uh, 2013 through 2017. And for that five-year average, the Phillies ranked 
what did the Phillies rank? The Phillies ranked in 10th place. They're around the Blue Jays and the Cubs. They have a five-year average of uh, about $135 million payroll. They're down to 64. They have, <laughs> their payroll has dropped from that average by $71 million. That is the projection. The team that's dropped the second most is currently the Dodgers, but of course they're doing it for a very different reason. The Phillies are just way down there, and this is even factoring in the fact that they signed Carlos Santana, which is kind of a weird fit, but you can clearly see they have money to move. Now, the team that has most dramatically increased from its five-year payroll average this season, unsurprisingly, it's the Houston Astros, who are up $78 million. Second place is the Mariners, quietly. I didn't know that had happened. Up $38 million, but the I think the thing that... I notice here the most, and I'm going to go back to the Phillies, but you look at, there are some teams that have dropped payroll substantially because they're bad. The Phillies are bad. The Tigers are bad. The White Sox are going to be bad. The A's probably kind of bad. Padres, bad. Rangers, worse, maybe bad. So lots of teams in not great positions who have trimmed payroll, but you think, what is one of the things holding up the free agent market right now. You Darvish, according to Andy McCullough, would like to re-sign with the Dodgers if you could. Dodgers want to get, stay out, uh, stay under the luxury tax so they could stand to lose some money. Well, what's the deadest of all dead contracts in baseball? It is Matt Kemp's contract. Matt Kemp <laughs> might actually even be a dead person right now. I don't know, but he's still getting paid $43 million. And it seems like there's no shortage of teams that could get Matt Kemp. This is what all got me looking at Wilmer Font, because I think that teams could stand to buy a prospect by taking on Matt Kemp's dead money, getting value along with him. And uh, that's what got me looking at Wilmer Font. But there's any number of other players in the Dodgers system who would be interesting. So I have this whole table of payroll information that goes back 19 years. I don't know what else needs to be said about it for this Stat Blast segment, but I've got data. And if you (laughs) want some of it, uh, well, I don't really, I don't really know what the the means are, but I got it anyway, and I'll yeah. save it. And you can email me, I guess, if you want some stuff, or just go to cuts. It's a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just looking also at the Fangraphs depth charts, which have their own section for free agents, so you can click on by division, by team, and just free agents as if they're their own team. And right now, there is a projected total of fifty-seven point five WAR available via free agency and to put that into perspective the best projected team in baseball is the astros they are projected to have 52 war so free agents combined have about five and a half wins more talent projected for 2018 than the best team in baseball obviously there are many more free agents on this list than there are players on a single baseball team so it's not really a an apples to orange comparison or it is an apples to oranges <laughs> comparison that's how fruit analogies work but <laughs> That kind of underscores just how much talent is still available on the free agent market. I don't know what the equivalent like average total at the beginning of February would be in a typical year, but I'm going to guess significantly lower than that. Yeah, I had completely forgotten that Greg Holland is... I know that I just mentioned him a few minutes ago in context of the Marlins, but yeah, looking... I think we all know the free agent market right now is kind of sad, kind of bad. Jason Vargas is out there just waiting for his call from the Orioles, I'm sure, but he'll be competing with Andrew Kashner, and maybe they can re-sign Chris Tillman. I don't know, but yeah, I can can easily see about $350 to $400 million being spent on these free agents for the season ahead, which would then lift league-wide payroll over last year's mark, but I don't know. I haven't run the numbers, but it could be a photo finish and the last time that there was a drop in the average opening day payroll was 2009 when payroll went down about one percent which barely counts and in 2004 it went down three percent which counts more Mm -hmm. all right well let's take a related question then from jeremiah who says Will the relatively icy temperature of this year's hot stove make pending free agents more likely to sign extensions with their current clubs? Or, in fan language, will Kershaw sign an extension with my Dodgers? And I responded to Jeremy. I said that I think one of the reasons we're in this situation is that a lot of players have already signed extensions. I think Sam wrote an article about how it's Mike Trout's fault that this year's free agency is so slow because Mike Trout could have, would have been a free agent this winter, except that he signed an extension with the Angels and did not become a free agent then. So that's been happening for you know decades now. So I, I think that's part of why we have a weaker market. But the question is, will 
players be even more likely to sign extensions now that they've seen what can befall a free agent today? You go either way, because if you don't sign that extension, you get the free agency sooner, which means that you get to it when you're younger. And I'm not sure that there's, I mean, of course, teams look at free agents and they value talent the most, but age is just such an enormous secondary factor. It's why Eric Hosmer has such a big contract out there waiting for him. It's why Jason Hayward signed for his terms. Teams love to get these guys when they're in their mid or maybe kind of mid-late 20s. If that's a term, this narrows down to one specific age, but in any case. But again, we come back to the fact that teams and players have different incentives and players just the first $10 million to a player is so massively much more important than the second $10 million. But for a team that it just really doesn't matter that much, you're just trying to maximize every single cost and you get to make a lot of these decisions. So, you know, the John Singleton's contract is one of the only long term young player extensions that hasn't turned out to be super team friendly. But Mm -hmm. I mean, John Singleton still, what did he sign for? About $10 million. Yeah. And that's just life-changing money, especially if you look at where he is now. The news just came out that Mark Appella is taking a break from baseball, somewhat mm-hmm. unofficially retiring. And now he made $6 million, I think, as a signing bonus, but you can't really do that anymore. So there's so much money out there that the players deserve as a slice of revenue, but I don't know how you get them to actually hold out to get the most. Of course, mm-hmm. there are free agents who do it, but it, there needs to be some sort of insurance policy, which I know Dave Cameron has written about before, before he was stolen by a baseball organization. And the, uh, the I know we have seen players dabble in like some sort of selling of stock, which seems to yeah. have either gone away or is just not making headlines anymore. But if players could proceed with the knowledge that they have a security blanket, security net, I'm losing my expressions here, mm-hmm. uh, with security, if players could move forward knowing that an injury wouldn't ruin their livelihood then you will see fewer of these extensions and more players hitting free agency, which would, I think that would be good. It depends mm-hmm. what you're trying to get. But right now, players need that that money. That money that you're offered when you're a, a good second-year player is just too massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in theory, there should be a, a cyclical element to it where if a bunch of guys sign extensions, then they don't reach free agency when they're still desirable players. And then each additional future player has more incentive not to sign an extension because he could be the one great free agent who could really cash in on a weak market. But if teams just aren't signing free agents, period, if that proves to be the case, then there's just no reason to wait. And as for like Kershaw, Bryce Harper, that type of player, I'm not sure that this sort of slowness will apply to them. Like with every player on this year's market, basically you could point to a reason not to sign him to a deal that he would want, you know, whether it's that he's just not that great or he's too old or whatever, like. With Bryce Harper, there aren't really a a whole lot of negatives about him. You know, maybe he could be a bit more durable, but that's about all you could say. So if he gets to free agency and as young as he is, I mean, I don't think that he will be affected by this. I think he's sort of exempt. Now, Clayton Kershaw, I mean... Really depends how he does this season. If his back issues recur, then he might have a tough time getting a long-term deal too. But someone like Harper, I, I just I don't think that he's such a you know close to unique player that I, I don't think anyone will hesitate to sign him. There's just so much Bryce Harper scarcity. Yeah, no, there's a zero percent chance that. Bryce Harper doesn't hit free agency. Scott Boris would not allow oh, him sure. to yeah. sign because you just have to see what can happen here. Mm-hmm. You have to as an agent. Yeah, and I I don't think he will really be adversely affected by this trend if it is one. No. All right, we are close here. Josh says in episode 1165, Jeff made a comment about the market needing career-extending steroids to fix the current lack of free agent signings. My question is, is the end of the steroid era actually a possible explanation for the lack of movement in the current market? Looking at the leaderboards, 12 players over the age of 35 were worth at least one and a half war in the 1997 season, 20 players were in the 2007 season, and then only five last year. Could what we're seeing now be a market correction by front offices who in the past were more willing to pay older players expecting them to have steroid era like career paths could what we're seeing now be the result of players signing team-friendly extensions there we go again 
thinking they'd still be able to sign big deals when they eventually hit free agency in their early 30s, discovering that's less likely now because the possibility of a player performing well into his late 30s is even lower now than it used to be. And I have an essay sort of on this topic coming out in a book in May. Mike Pesca, host of The Gist at Slate, put together a really fun book called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. And it's just a, a collection of essays by various authors. And I wrote one in there about how baseball would be different, essentially, if steroid testing had started earlier. And I considered a bunch of things, but what really becomes clear, not to give away the whole thing, you can go pre-order that book now if you want, is that that era was unusual. I mean, lots of smart people have pointed out that you know, we can't necessarily draw a direct line between steroids and homers, and there were lots of other things going on at that time, smaller strike zones and ballparks and expansion, and I totally agree with that. But at the same time, the aging pattern in that era was just unlike anything else really older players were more productive than at any point you know unless you were comparing like the end of world war ii where the younger guys were in the service for instance i mean that's kind of the only comp to how productive older players were and how much of the league-wide war was coming from older players i mean it's very suspicious you know and and i think that i mean when you look at guys who hit 60 70 home runs then you could say there was probably something going on with them given their aging pattern even if the typical player who was taking something was not turning into Barry Bonds but anyway I'm ranging far afield here the question is about the market and the lack of steroids or relative lack of steroids yeah now just looking at numbers between 1998 and we'll we'll get to the question in a minute between 1998 and I don't know 2002 call it a five-year window players who were 33 years old or older league-wide averaged about 115 or 120 total war each season and last year 61 <laughs> yeah so yeah it's uh it's plummeted but uh yeah i think the long story short i think that right now agents are bad i think that agents have been too slow to respond to the market teams just obviously have more and better information also teams know what teams are doing and agents just haven't been able to keep up same with the trends and so much of earning contracts obviously through arbitration it's all about precedent your own and other players precedent and in the free agent market you as an agent also point to precedent because it's the easiest case to make this guy got 80 million dollars so why should my guy get 80 million dollars but you can't really use a lot of recent precedents because the agent curve was just yeah. very clearly different and so, of course, teams were not only were teams just more irresponsible with the money just because they understood baseball less. But, yeah, older players just weren't the risks that they are now. Or even if you don't think that older players are risks, per se, younger players are just better. They're more suited for the game as it is now. Right. They're quicker. They're more athletic. They throw harder. Yeah, they come up, you know, in a more prepared state, maybe, to play baseball mm -hmm. at young ages. They've been playing baseball year round. They've gotten excellent instruction from a young age. It's not just necessarily that older Older players are tailing off more quickly, although it may be that, but it's also that younger guys are coming up and being more productive quickly, and teams are probably getting better at identifying the right people to promote and when to promote them. Yeah, and you, I don't know if this is true, but you could probably figure that younger players are probably a little more analytically open-minded, maybe mm -hmm. they're more pliable, and so they're, you know, they're, a young pitcher coming out of the farm is not going to complain about, like, shifts, mm -hmm. shifts, he's not going to be like Bud Norris or whatever with the Astros just complaining about the infield all the time. Yeah. So there are so many reasons to prefer younger players, and so you have this whole era of free agent contracts that were signed that just are in no way reflective of contracts that would be available now. So agents need to catch up. Now, J.D. Martinez is going to sign for a lot of money. He's not that young. Jake Arrieta is going to sign for a lot of money. He's not that young. These players are going to get big deals. But yeah, you can't you can't get to free agency when you're 31 and think that you're going to get eight years because teams just aren't going to do that. You need you would need to be exceptionally good. Mm -hmm. All right. And last question from Luke. I know the new idea is that you want your best hitter hitting second. I understand that. My question is, what do you do with the three and four holes? Say you have the following four players in their prime, Ichiro, Bonds, Pujols, and Ricky Henderson. What order do you put them in? So I think the, the number two hitter has gotten a lot of attention. It's not necessarily that you automatically want your clearly best hitter in the number two slot. I think it's more like the difference between the new understanding of who should be batting second and the old understanding of who should be batting second is the greatest because, you know, leadoff hitters have often been good and certainly three and four hitters have 
traditionally been great hitters, whereas number two guys were just sort of your bat control slap hitter types. And so their reputation, their expectation has probably been upgraded the most, I think. But basically, you want your best three hitters, I think, in the number one, number four, and number two spots in some order. And you want the on-base guys higher in the order and the power guys lower in the order as as generally a rule of thumb. So I think really in the leadoff slot, you can't go wrong with the best leadoff hitter of all time, probably. I think Ricky can continue hitting leadoff in a, <laughs> in a modern lineup. I think that is just fine. He gets on base, didn't have a ton of power relative, obviously, to Bonds and Pujols. So I think you still put him at the top. And then I guess, you know, I think you put Ichiro three because you want a high average guy there who can drive the guys who are getting on base in front of him on. So I think you would put the guy who's hitting like 390 in that spot probably. And that guy comes to the plate. I guess you you need less power from that slot than you would from the others so I think Ichiro would make most sense there but as for number two and number four I mean Bonds and Pujols in their primes are two of the best hitters ever so it it hardly makes a difference but I guess I would go with man I mean I was gonna say Bonds is more of an on-base guy but Bonds is also more of a a power guy no one has ever been more of either than peak Bonds so (laughs) I don't know how you go wrong with either I I guess maybe you put Bonds higher up just to get him more plate appearances and get that OBP up there. I don't know. One thing that I have wondered, and I'm not quick enough to research this now, but the, there was all the conversation 10 years ago or 15 years ago about wanting your wanting to get better hitters in the number two slot because you know they, they bat the most often and they bat with runners on base. And you know, the guy who bats third comes up pretty often with two outs and nobody on. But I wonder now if that has shifted since number two hitters just had like their best season ever. Mm that now if you have more emphasis on getting the first and second guy on base, all of a sudden maybe the third slot actually becomes more desirable. This is just a theory that I have not investigated. I was just trying to investigate it while you were talking and I (laughs) I didn't get to where I wanted to go. So I don't know. It's something to think about, but I can at least tell you that number two hitters were just phenomenal. They just had a 108 league average WRC plus, which is the best in modern history. So Mm -hmm. that's pretty good. But as far as Bonds, Pujols, would not love to have that choice in 2018. Would have loved (laughs) to have that choice in like 2004. Bonds second, Pujols fourth, whatever. By the time to get to the fourth place, the pitcher is going to (laughs) run away. He's going to go into the witness protection, for God's sake. Yeah, I'm reading from an old Sky Kaufman post at Beyond the Box Score about optimizing your lineup according to Tom Tango and MGL's The Book. And it says, uh, the number two hitter comes to bat in situations about as important as the number three hitter, but more often. That means the number two hitter should be better than the number three guy and one of the three best hitters overall. And since he bats with the bases empty more often than the hitters behind him, he should be a high OBP player. Then the cleanup slot, the book says the number four hitter comes to bat in the most important situations out of all nine spots, but is equal in importance to the number two hole. Once you consider the number two guy receives more plate appearances, the cleanup hitter is the best hitter on the team with power. So I, mean, I guess that's Bonds. I guess that's Bonds. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> it's really, I mean, they're both on base and power guys so this is not the typical choice that a manager faces so (laughs) can't go wrong with either but yeah i think ricky lead off each row number three and then take your pick of the other two guys my god (laughs) (laughs) then you could have the marlins outfield fill out the rest of the lineup yeah all right we are done by the way, meant to bring this up in the banter at the beginning of the episode, but we have arrived at the sixth annual Effectively Wild Season Preview Podcast Series. We're going to be doing that starting next week. So for those of you who have not been on this journey with us before, in the couple months leading up to opening day every year, we do a team-by-team podcast preview series. We're going to stick with the same format that we used last year, which is going by the Fangraphs depth charts projections as they stand today. We'll be taking the best projected team and the worst projected team, talking about them, and then working our way inward. So we'll end with the two middle projected teams right before opening day. And on each of these episodes, we will have a guest, some subject matter expert in each team to talk about that team. 
We'll put them together and make them a podcast. We'll still have some brief banter and discussion before the preview part of the episodes, and we will still be doing listener email shows on Wednesdays or our middle of the week shows. So it won't be all previews all the time, but we have found that it's a good primer for people, gets everyone excited for the season, informed for the season. A lot of listeners have found us through the team preview series. So it's a little bit different from what we typically do. But I remember running a survey in the Facebook group last year asking people if we should do it again. And the response was overwhelmingly in favor of, yes, you should do it again. So we will do it again. So twice a week, team preview pods from now through almost opening day. And also, I want to put in another plug for the Effectively Wild Wiki crowdsourcing project. I would really love it if this comes together. I think it would be a great resource for the podcast community. So again, I will link to the sign-up sheet, which will have instructions and places to claim episodes. We'll also link to the thread about it in the Facebook group. You can find that in the show page at Fangraphs. You can also find it on Effectively Wild's Twitter at EWPod, or you can find it in the Facebook group, which you don't have to join and be a member of to view, but you should join at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. If you want to claim one episode, great. If you want to take 10 episodes, great. Hopefully it'll be fun. There are a lot of listeners, so it might not take that long. If everyone takes a a small part of it, there will also be pages for guests and inside references. If you're confused by some effectively wild meme, there will be a page that will explain it for you. And again, hopefully we'll have big databases that you can search for topics and teams discussed in certain episodes or email questions asked before. So it'll be a lot of fun to watch this all grow. You can also support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already done so include Michael Berger, Brandon Kuhn, Warren Margulies, Brian Beyer, and David B., who says in parentheses, Hi, Mom. Hello, David B.'s mom. You've raised a fine son who has excellent tastes in podcasts. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks, as always, to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. So have a wonderful weekend. We will be back early next week with the first two teams in the season preview series, the Houston Astros and the Chicago White Sox. Talk to you then.